Well, here we are, the faithful remnant for our (laughs) final session. And for our opening prayer, let us pray using Psalm 63. (laughs) Let us pray. O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsts for thee, my flesh also longeth after thee in a barren and dry land where no water is. Thus have I looked for thee in the sanctuary, that I might behold thy power and glory. For thy loving kindness is better than life itself. My lips shall praise thee. As long as I live, I will magnify thee in this manner and lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied, even as it were, with marrow and fatness, when my mouth praises thee with joyful lips. Have I not remembered thee in my bed and thought upon thee when I was waking? Because thou hast been my helper. Therefore, Under the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul hangeth upon thee. Thy right hand hath upholden me. The word of the Lord. As we continue uh, sort of a devotional, let's pay attention to the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm we all know best as sung by the King's College Choir, using Anglican chant.
find this as meaningful as I do, there are in fact three volumes of this that are readily available. Father Paul just picked it up instantly on, on what, YouTube? Yeah. Uh, King's College Choir, Cambridge, England. There's other choirs uh, that do the Psalms, English choirs, but none of them do them like King's College Choir does. It's, 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 there are worse ways to do your private devotionals than to include some of these. Uh, let's listen to those as you do your Psalm uh, readings. Okay, well, um, I've got a lot more here than what we'll ever get done in one day, but we'll just push on and, and see where we get from all this. We've already done the Psalms of Ascent, so we don't need to do that anymore. Uh, so, uh, as we go into some of the Psalms that are coming up today, uh, uh, and, and I refer to what some of the church fathers have said, we run into a, a style of interpretation that I presume you're aware of, but you may, you may not be, and that is an allegorical or a typological uh, approach or interpretation of Scripture. An allegory, of course, is a story where each character represents someone or something else. So uh, if you recall the Psalm 121 that we looked at last time, I will lift up my eyes unto the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Here we have what Augustine says in his sermon 379.7. I lifted up my eyes to the mountains from where my help shall come because <laughs> there was a man sent from God whose name was John. So immediately he takes the psalm and uh, whatever else it might mean, he makes a New Testament application for it. It's very common with the church fathers, uh, and again, correct me if I'm wrong about this, this is not my main area of study, but very often what they do in the Old Testament is, is to take an allegorical approach and apply it to New Testament personalities. So, uh, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came to bear witness to the light. So you have lifted up your eyes to the mountain, John from where your help may come, because he is bearing witness to the light. Do not stop on the mountain. My help is from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That is Christ. All things were made through him. That's what we would call uh, I'm a, a uh, allegorical approach to an Old Testament text where you apply to it a New Testament meaning. Another example of this uh, uh, would be something that I picked up from the, the Catholic Herald, Salvadore Ceresi, I guess, um, talking about Exodus chapter 16, the story about manna, Moses and the manna in the wilderness. The manna represents the Holy Eucharist of John 6. And so there's another example we, was that a hand up again? Nope. <laughs> I catch you every time. 
No, please don't. I'll just, uh, I'll just ask. <laughs> okay, now, uh, here is uh, another psalm I want us to... Oh, that's the one that we were just talking about. So uh, we, we did this study on it last week. Uh, but uh, this is going to come up as we look at some of these interpretations of these psalms here. We said in the beginning that you can divide the psalms into different categories. Psalms of lament, psalms about the king, messianic psalms, uh, psalms of praise, psalms of thanksgiving, and so forth. If we look at some of the psalms of praise, here is a typical list of some of the psalms, and, and one of them that I have marked down here is Psalm 8. So I'd like us to take a look at Psalm 8. And so let's do this uh, according to half verse, honoring the parallelism in the psalm. I'll read the first half of the verse. You follow with the second half. O Lord, our governor, how excellent is thy name in all the world. How How the mouth of very babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies. When I consider the heavens, even the work of thy fingers, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou wishest him. Thou madest him lower than the angels. Thou makest him to have dominion of the works of thy hands. And thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowls of the air, and the fishes of the sea. And whatsoever walketh through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our governor, how excellent is thy name in all the world. Anybody recognize that background? I've shown it here once before. It is the recently taken picture from the web satellite. Is that what they're calling it? James James Webb satellite. Um, Again, taking a picture of a very pinprick area in space where there didn't appear to be anything at all. And then this is what they have found in, in picture. The clearest picture to date of a infinitesimally small portion. So you need to multiply that picture times any number of billions to get an idea of the universe. By the way, most of those dots are not suns, they're galaxies. (laughs) Frequent flyer mileage. (laughs) When I consider thy heavens, The work of thy fingers. What is man that thou art mindful of him? I find for myself, I I like, I don't know anything about it, but if there's a documentary about about space or astrology, I always always try to watch it. I I find it fascinating. Uh, It, I think, can take you two ways. I think for many scientists, in light of the immensity of all of that, they dismiss God, at least the God that 
Christians and Jews might talk about um, as just uh, being too small for grandeur such as this. For me, who has uh, made a life decision to believe God's word as it comes to me in Scripture, I am forced to expand my concept of who this God is and to now know just how big a universe I am a part of, to know that he still cares about me as an individual person is, uh, makes it infinitely more uh, mind-blowing to me and amazing and makes me that much more thankful and grateful to this God who is so overwhelming and yet, I'm, and again, there's no word, overwhelming strikes me as too small a word for the grandeur that we're looking at here, and that he is one who knows me intimately and personally. Thanks be to God. O Lord, our Lord, is how this psalm starts in most most Bibles. Again, in the Coverdale version that we have in in our uh, Book of Common Prayer, it's O Lord, our Governor. So why the different names for God. And again, I think you all know most of this, but uh, we'll throw it in and, and, and deal with it briefly. If you want to talk about it more, we can. As you may well know, uh, when <clears throat> uh, Moses is experiencing the burning bush and he asks God, who shall I tell the people of Israel has sent me uh, to, to free them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The, the, the Hebrew, of course, the Hebrew Bible does not have vowels in it. It just has consonants. So you have the Y-H-W-H. And that's the first word. O Lord, our Lord. Now that word is Adon which means a governor or a sovereign. So uh, that is why in the version that we just looked at, uh, the uh, language is, O Lord, our governor, as opposed to, O Lord, our Lord, that is in so many, or in most all, of the modern translations of the Bible. <clears throat> it's interesting that uh, uh, I think by Jesus' time already, if not sooner, I'm not sure when it started, uh, Jews decided that this name given by God to describe himself was too holy to be spoken out loud. And so they substituted, they would see the word in print, the word Yahweh, but they would never say it. They would say Adonai or Adonai. That's both of which, which means my Lord. And that was the substitution that they would make every time this comes up. You know you are seeing the word Yahweh. Look at the word Lord in yellow there. You notice how it's capital and then small capital letters. So when you see the word Lord with a capital L and then small case letters, that's not the word Yahweh. But when it's that way, you know, that's the translation to, uh, to give special honor to that word. When I taught at uh, Erskine Seminary, uh, my 
Old Testament professor. I don't know if any of you had the privilege of knowing Bill Kirkendall. He was, uh, he was our Old Testament professor and my Hebrew professor. Uh, he was also a, a scholar about all things Jewish. And he did some of his training at a uh, school. It may have been a Jewish school, I'm not sure, but some sort of a school in New York City. And the teacher of that course was a conservative Jewish rabbi. And he was discussing something with the class. And one of the students asked a question and said the word Yahweh. And he just went, according to Bill Kirkham, he says, he just went, oh, oh, oh. And tears started rolling down his face. And he just grabbed his book and walked out of the classroom. And that was, that was the end of class that day. Somebody had said the holy, unspeakable name. That's the kind of reverence that should be given, uh, certainly in Jewish culture. You see the way it would be spelt? Of course, it's backwards. So it's Yahweh. Now notice, too, that uh, in, in so many languages, J's and Y's are the same letter. And often the W and the V's uh, come out the same letter, too. And so what you have, therefore, is sometimes J-H-V-H instead of Y-H-W-H. And that's where we get the word Jehovah. It's taking the consonants from this uh, various uh, tetragrammaton, where this is more the original, and vowels, some vowels, were placed in it. Again, remember, there, there is no vowels. That's part of why nobody knows really how to say the word, because there were no vowels for it. Well, that's the name that we're dealing with here. And it's good to keep that in mind when you read the, the little things that you can look for that can change uh, profoundly our reading of Scripture. When you see the word Lord that we're so glib to pass over, and you happen to catch it, and you notice it's a capital and then small caps after it, you know that that is a very special word that should be taken with great reverence. A little seminary tidbit. Yeah. Uh, as I learned about the word Jehovah in Bible college, that if you look at the vowels, uh, my understanding is that they took the, the consonants of Yahweh and the vowels of Elohim and put them together to create the word Jehovah so that you wouldn't ever mispronounce, and essentially it's a mishmash of Elohim and Yahweh together. Of course, the A. Yeah, well, how the A, but I remember that story. Yeah, so, yeah, that's an interesting Yeah. Thing. Now, I don't know how that, I don't know how multilingual uh, Jehovah is. I mean, what would a Spanish person say? So, but anyway, that, that's, that's part of it. That's yet another name for God that we'll run into in a minute. Well, let's take a look at now what uh, Gregory of Nazianzus says in his work on theology about this psalm. The majesty, or as Holy David calls it, the glory is manifested among the creatures that it has produced and governs. That is that the glory of God has produced and governs. These, I love this, these are the back parts of God. What are we talking about? The glory of God in the heavens. 
what, what are our nature, you know, pick the wonderful thing that God has created. These are the back parts of God, which he leaves behind him as tokens of himself, like the shadows and reflections of the sun in the water, which show the sun to our weak eyes, because we cannot look at the sun himself, for by his unmixed light, he's too strong for our power of perception. Psalm goes on, out of the mouth of very babes and sucklings hast thou ordained, that is, hast thou established or thou hast built strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. What? <laughs> what do you make of that? I just think of it that he doesn't require uh, his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways. If, for instance, with the Tower of Babel, if if we were to stop the work of the Tower of Babel, we would have some great plan of violence, and we would bring you know armies bashing, smashing. All he did was change the language, so his way can be much more gentle and simple, and so out of the mountain, very base, can strength be ordained. He can just, with the, with the sound of a, of a child's mouth, the evidence of the Creator is there. And it's already more powerful than, any, than anything your enemy could muster, which is uh, you know, second rate compared to the little voice that he created. And isn't that the way God so often works? You know, he, he chooses some thing of little import David, the last of the sons, becomes, becomes the king. Uh, this little girl called Mary in this Noah camp town in Nazareth becomes the mother of our Lord. Uh, Bob Glick stands in front of you teaching. Oh, who, whose idea of a bad joke is that? <laughs> uh, God chooses the things that are weak and of no account. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a great insight here. Here's uh, what Cassiodorus says in explanation of the Psalms. The sense here is, you are not only worthy of praise from the perfect who know you fully, but you are proclaimed by the mouths of infants and little ones, those who have begun to draw near to the Lord in newness of faith, so that this wisdom might be seen to be imparted from heaven rather than amassed by human efforts. Another example of what? Allegory. All right. What does the psalmist mean by babes and infants? He doesn't mean human being babies. He means those babies in the faith, the new in the faith. Another way to look at it. Any other thoughts about this intriguing verse? Time's up. That last line, can we flip back? So that this wisdom might be seen to be imparted from heaven rather than amassed by human effort. I look at that as my salvation, too. I, I, I get agitated with 
choosing him in my sinful nature, only if he intervenes. Just like God only sees us through the lens of Christ, there has to be that intermediary for our salvation and our realizing our salvation, which is kind of that last sentence. I mean, to me. Yeah, well, that's, that is a great truth, and, and thank you for pointing that out. Couldn't agree more. What is man? The psalmist goes on. Thou madest him little, well, it doesn't say little here, it does in some translations. Thou madest him lower than the angels. Now here's Elohim that Father Paul was talking about. So, uh, and again, you read different translations, and they don't all say. Uh, uh, lower than the angels. Uh, there's other things uh, that, that get used at points based on the various meanings for Elohim. Notice Elohim is plural. It has the I am ending, which is uh, how in Hebrew you make uh, a noun plural. So uh, Elohim would mean gods. Could also mean heavenly beings. And as we see here, uh, it's often translated angels, as it is in this version of the Psalms. And in Hebrew, uh, the way this word God is often referred, uh, there's the tetragrammaton that the Jews wouldn't say, Y-H-W-H. There is uh, Adonai, which means uh, our leader. And then there is Elohim, which is a plural form. So it can mean gods, but there's also in Hebrew the idea that the I am plural ending can be an intensifier. So uh, Elohim means God <laughs> rather than just God. It, it's, it's like an exclamation point. Right? In the beginning, we find right in our Bibles and in chapter one of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the word there is Elohim. It does not mean more than one God. It simply means a way of honoring uh, this, this powerful being. But so another rendering might be, you have made him little less than a God, which is what the older uh, Roman Catholic Bible, the Jerusalem Bible, translates it that way. I just put that there for you to look at for a minute and for me to look at for a bit. I'm wondering if you have any experiences in your life where looking up at the sky changed your life or made a difference for you. I'll tell you mine while you think. I could think of more than one, but it was a period in my life, this is quite a number of decades ago, it's so depressing to think you can talk about your life <laughs> as a professional in terms of numbers of decades. <laughs> that gets them, takes some getting used to. Anyway, earlier in my career, I was not a happy camper. Things were not going well. There was much to worry about, much to fret about. So I decided I was going to go out and take a walk clear my head. And I did. And I was living in a part of the country where there was uh, not many city lights. So uh, when you got out of the little village I was living in, the sky was pretty amazing. 
And I just looked up at that sky and it put everything in perspective for me. Now, was that God speaking to me or, or not? Uh, you, you can't really say, but I, I don't think things like that just happen. Uh, what, what occurred to me was how big God is, uh, how wise God is, and how small my problems were, and how easily God could take care of that situation based on what I was looking at. And that's part of what endears me about pictures like this. I, I remember that event. It was, it was one of those minor life-changing things. I, now when I, I get uptight about things, I, I think about looking at the sky. And it clears my head. Any of you have experiences? Yeah. I mean, that totally, uh, uh, we've felt that before, certainly in the, the, the vastness of the universe and, and our place in it. But sometimes it's the opposite, too. And um, I, there's been times where somehow that vastness, I've felt closer to God somehow uh, with the stars and being by yourself or whatever. Um, it, it's, it's amazing how you can have those both of those sensations at once. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's, it's very comforting and not just, you know, this, this, uh, the magnitude of it all uh, is certainly there, but the closeness is too. Yeah. I don't know what effect it would have on me since I think about this stuff a lot. Uh, I think if I didn't have my faith in God, I, I think I might be overwhelmed by all of this. How puny and insignificant I must really be in the light of this little pinprick of space here. <laughs> but uh, I, I believe God's word, and I know that God is very aware of me. and has me in the palm of his hand. That's some kind of a hand. <laughs> if he created that, why can't he solve our problems? He can't. When he's ready, but it's like... When he's ready. It wasn't perspective. We used to go out on our deck and small, less than 10,000 people. So, and they fought um, light. They wanted to have more light in the area. And we'd go out if it wasn't cloudy, which many times it was not. And even more so in the winter. Because you oh. feel that chill around you as yes. you're looking out. We could see the Milky Way just like it was in our backyard. And we'd look at those stars. And we wouldn't talk for a while. We'd just, I mean, that's a long time, but just a little bit. And we look. And you, you realize how small you are, but how important we are to God that he came for us and to obey his father. And, and then the opposite's true, that he created all that so you can take comfort in that. Where you think if you're out there at night, people say, well, I want the daylight. And, uh, it's kind of like Brian said, you get this opposite. Small and insignificant, but yet you are taken care of, and all. And that, like you said, it's a speck. A little lower than the angels. Yeah, you can't put your head around that. You can get a headache. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Anything else? Before we push on. Yeah. This is a very small thing that's meant several different things to me at various times, but uh, I think it was at a 
a stressful point in my sophomore year of undergrad a few years ago, um, and I was driving in my car some random evening, I don't remember from where or to where, um, and I had the very simple realization that every single sunset is different. So not stars, I guess, but um, yeah, and I think in that moment that was a uh, constant reminder of new mercies. Uh, but yeah, so that, was, that was pretty powerful for me. That is powerful. The sunset is quite powerful. Anything else? Good stuff. Well, there's another category that we need to take a look at. It's not as much fun, but it's, uh, and it's essential. Psalms of Lament. There's a lot of them. As you look at all those possibilities there. Let's choose, for example, Psalm 13. It's one of the shorter ones. The Bible says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Shout unto the Lord, it says in some translations. I don't know that's the only time that David and the other psalmists shouted. I don't think you can do this psalm the right way unless you scream it. A person doesn't say the things this psalm says unless they're at their wit's end. How long, Lord? Are you going to forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I'm going to sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. How else can you say that? And without making a mockery of the song. To me, one of the great beauties of the song. I don't know about you. I, actually, I do know about you. <laughs> there are times in your life you've been angry at God. Maybe really angry. And the Holy Spirit, in his wisdom, has included psalms where the psalmist is really angry with God. There's no sense trying to put a peppermint coating on this psalm. He's mad. And who's he mad at? The one who could do something about it if he wanted to. And it's been going on and on and on and on how long? Four times. Screaming how long? Now he does come around, doesn't he? But <laughs> I trust in your unfailing love. You wouldn't think it <laughs> based on all this. I trust in your unfailing love what an amazing line. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Oh, and there it is, both, both sides of it. This is written by a person who 
It says a Psalm of David. Again, we don't know if that means David wrote it or it's written David's style or whatever. But let's say it's David. We know about David's life. We know what he went through. We know of all these Psalms he's writing. We know of his trust in God from his youth when he was willing to go out and fight and defeat Goliath just as a kid. And now looks like he's an older person. His faith is still there, but he doesn't understand why all this is happening to him. And he's about at his wit's end. I thank God that there are songs like this. It tells me that when I don't understand what's going on, and there's no getting around it, um, I think Anglican theology and, and me being drenched in Presbyterian theology is enough the same that no matter what happens in my life, I see God as having ordained that in my life. So when really awful things have happened, and in my life, really awful things have happened, I get angry with God. I don't understand. And I don't like it one bit. It hurts. It really really hurts and I'm tired of hurting and I want it to stop and God isn't letting it stop yet yet I know I know all this but I gotta vent and I've got to say with Psalms like 13 that, that this is not sacrilegious or it wouldn't be part of holy writ it's the inspired word of God and yet it is honest. And what the Lord tells me with Psalms like Psalm 13 is, I understand, child. Sometimes, sometimes you just got to vent. <laughs> and, and so you, you vent. It doesn't mean you're giving up your faith. It doesn't mean you've stopped believing the truths about God. But you're tired of the pain. You're tired of the hurting. And it's okay to tell God all about that. Now, if you want to come back at me about something about that, I have strong convictions about that, but uh, I'd be happy to hear any experiences you have or a different perspective. I just have always called it we're spiritually schizophrenic. I'm sorry, ma'am? I've always said we're spiritually schizophrenic. <laughs> we're too we're worrying with ourselves. I thought of using that very word when you look at the two parts of that song. <clears throat> And David knows that. He knows he's not going to be forsaken. Yeah. It's interesting as we look at these psalms and look at all those psalms of lament. I just chose 13 because it's short. <laughs> Some go on and on and on. Um, every one of the lament psalms, except one, ends with praise. But there is one that we'll take a look at, if time permits, where things are so bad, the psalm writer never gets to the praise part at the end. 
uh, and yet it's part of sacred writ. How so? They don't have anybody to lament to. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they can't say how long, although some of them do. Yeah. Yeah. Things, bad things happen, and they they swear at God, even though they don't believe in God. You know, but if, if bad things happen to an atheist, what does he say? Okay, how can you say how long will you forget me? But I will trust in. I mean, there's no. Yeah. Nothing to say, right? Mm-hmm. What are you lamenting against? Fate? Or I, I think you have to have a God in order to lament, and that's a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. No? Anyway, that's my yeah. thought yeah. that. Yeah. Well, here's some of the things again that uh, various uh, church fathers have said. Cassiodorus writes. He asks for the appearing of Christ. So once again, you have this allegorical approach to the song. He asks for the appearing of Christ, whom he had long foreseen in spirit. How long, O Lord, how long until you send your Messiah? Chrysostom. Chrysostom. Accent on the second syllable there, Father Paul. Chrysostom. Okay. <laughs> Divine abandonment is a form of discipline. You see, when the one who offers care, that would be God, is slighted, he ignores and abandons us to some extent so that indifference may be expelled and the negligent may turn more zealous. When we are sinful, when we backslide, God says, okay. And he turns his back. He ignores and abandons us to some extent so that indifference may be expelled. So here's two different ideas from the the tack I just uh, very loudly (laughs) took about the psalm. Uh, Eusebius of Caesarea When one persists in sin, more and more shadows come because deep within him, the face of God remains turned away. Augustine says, God no more turns away his face than he forgets. But scripture adopts our human idiom. God is said to turn away his face as long as he refuses knowledge of himself to a soul whose spiritual eyes are not yet pure. Did you follow that? (laughs) Augustine says, God no more turns away his face than he, well, God doesn't forget. And he's saying, well, God doesn't turn his face away from you either. But scripture adopts our human idiom, our human way of being. God is said to turn away his face as long as he refuses knowledge of himself to a soul whose spiritual eyes are not yet pure. If your spiritual eyes are still prone towards sin, then God's going to not make himself known to you. He's not going to release knowledge of himself because you're not pure enough yet. 
Now, I don't buy that, <laughs> but that's what Augustine says. Yeah. I don't either. Neither did John of the Cross, who came up with the dark night of the soul. Yeah. The dark night of the soul is a time when somebody is mature enough that God takes away consolations so that that person seeks him and not the consolation. Mm -hmm. So to say, um, you can still cry out to God, say, how come it's so dark around me? How come I'm not having all the goodies that I had in my early Christian life? God said, because you've grown up a little bit. Mm. You know? So we're removing consolation so that you seek me and not the consolation. Yeah. So yeah. when you say, I feel really bad, God, you, you need to go deeper and ask, well, why do I feel bad? Because I don't, I'm not making a lot of money anymore. Because people have not, they're not recognizing me. Nobody's making a big deal out of me anymore. How long did I have to put up with this? And the Lord says, well, you've just proved that you need to have that consolation taken away. John of the Cross, Dark Night of the Soul. So it comes out a better spin than this, that you're sinful or you're yeah. pure or, you know, I mean, then, then everybody here who's had a difficult time would have to say, well, I guess I was impure and I was sinful. But then they start looking for sins and they can't find sins, and it's even more frustrating. Yeah, right? yeah. I I I, re I respond a lot the same way, Gene. I'll tell you. I'll tell you when my one of my dark nights uh, was. There was a period, ugh, 10, 15 years ago. Um, I'm a bachelor, as you know, but I'm very close to my family. My sisters are my best friends. Their children are very dear to me, and, and the whole family <laughs> means the world to me. There was a point at, at that time when all of a sudden, four of the members of my family were facing death at the same time. And it just, it was, uh, it was a punch to the gut for me. It, it just took my breath away from me. Uh, and that was too much pain. <laughs> that was too much pain at that point. Uh, and that's, that's, that's the lens through which I look at Psalm 13. It wasn't my, now there's plenty of my sins. If we want to talk about that, we won't, but we could. Uh, so there's plenty of guilt in, in my life, but I, I, it wasn't my fault that four of my beloved family members were struggling with cancer and all sorts of other things. Sometimes the doctors didn't even know what, but they were death's door. Four of them at the same time. So that supports what, what Gene is just saying. Uh, you, you can't just say this is about our sin. Yeah, if I could add to that, because I wrote a, I wrote a, a song to Psalm 13 in the mm. year that I was unemployed, which was the worst thing that could ever happen to me, I thought. And I was saying, how long? How long till I get a job? Now, would you say that was sinful? I don't think it was sinful. It's just like I felt like you forgotten me. But I didn't give up my faith, and I didn't no. get fired. But that was that was a Psalm 13. It was my song in that year, 2013. Mm -hmm. The only year of my life that it was unemployed. <clears throat> Thank you. Yes. I don't know a lot about the minor prophets, the not so minor, but I like Habakkuk. Yes. Because it's easy. You can read it in one sitting. It's it's you know you read it in 20 minutes, and it's not. A, it's not a prophet of limitation, but he complains in the whole first chapter. And God just lets him rattle on, you know, just rattle on, get it out. And then verse 2-4, I think it is, where 
the prophets suddenly realize the just shall live by faith. And that's, that's I think, the climax of the prophecy. And, of course, that's the verse that turned Luther around. That, that was his epiphany. But, you know, God just lets you rattle on sometimes until quiet comes and then the Holy Spirit gives you a verse from his book. So I, like, I love Habakkuk, actually. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Okay. We don't have time uh, to get in all of this, but you might want to explore Psalm 39. <laughs> uh, it goes on and on and on. <laughs> but look, my, my sister, my beloved sister, pointed this out to me. Because she, she asked me about it. She couldn't understand it. She was teaching it, and she's also a Bible teacher. Look at the last verse of this psalm. Now, what, what's written here uh, is, uh, I think, the New International Version. After complaining about all the trouble, all the ways it seems that God is chastising uh, him, look at this last verse. It's chilling. Look away from me that I may enjoy life again. Can you imagine saying that to God? And I've checked a lot of uh, uh, translations, and, and this is the sense you get from just about all of them. Uh, it's chilling. It's the psalm where there's no brightness at the end of it at all. The psalmist just can't write it. Look away from me, God, that I may enjoy life again before I depart and, and no more. Now, in the Book of Common Prayer, it says, Oh, spare me a little, that I may recover my strength. So that kind of takes the edge off this idea of, uh, God, just go away. Let me alone. It hurts. I'm sorry. Go away. Just let me die. Right. So there, there are these psalms here. Number one, they're there. Number two, they're the inspired word of God. Number three, I don't think we ought to try to uh, sugarcoat them. And number four, I don't think we need to take them and uh, give them some New Testament meaning. I think, now, the, the church fathers do this, and who am I to argue with them? But, you know... Jesus and the apostles are often taking Old Testament verses and making them apply, applying them to the New Testament, New Covenant situation. Now, I'm okay when Jesus or one of the apostles takes some psalm or some Old Testament passage and gives it a meaning different from what the writer had in mind back then, because they're all inspired, and that's the Word of God, and I'll accept that. But when human beings start to reinterpret a passage and give it a meaning different from what it originally had by the writer, they may be right too. Who am I to say they're not? But I think we need to be very careful when, when human beings try to change uh, the meaning, even if it is uh, giving it an uh, allegorical meaning. Uh, and, and if I'm stepping out of bounds there, Please, somebody speak up. Uh, that, that's, I just think we need to be careful. My 
evaluation of the word of God is too high for us to be messing around with it as human beings uh, if we're not writing inspired writ. Well, anyway, there's that. And we're about out of time. There's a whole section that I had prepared to do on an even more messy subject, and that's the imprecatory psalms. Uh, I guess uh, we have really no time to get into this at all, but if you haven't been aware of this before, here's another place where you can try to sugarcoat or you can just pass over and say, oh, I'm just not going to think about that. Or you can sit and struggle with the inspired word of God and, and ask yourself, how, what, what do I do with this? Uh, Psalm 109 is one example. Let me just give you the most uh, obvious example in the four minutes we have remaining. You will know this psalm, I think. It's Psalm 37. It's a psalm written while Israel is in exile in Babylon. Been kicked out of Jerusalem uh, and conquered and taken, what, maybe a thousand miles away to Babylon? A, a great distance. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundation. Daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you as you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. Uh, again, there's much we could say there. Uh, what, what I think we need to keep in mind, oh dear, I seem to have gone past it. Uh, it's not there. I don't know where it went. <clears throat> I, I thought I'd put a slide together where, to, to, oh, I know, it was earlier. <clears throat> Here's Psalm 109, which is not just one verse about dashing babies against rocks, but just over and over. Compare Psalm 109, Psalms praying about enemies, with what we read elsewhere in the New Testament scripture. May his days be few. You shall not hate your brother, nor avenge or bear a grudge. May his children be beggars. Love your neighbor as yourself. May his family be driven from ruined homes. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. May a creditor seize all he has. I love that one. 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. May no one show mercy to his family. If you see your enemy's ox going astray, bring it back to him. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And if you're going to honor scripture, if you believe it's the word of God, what do you do? What do you do here? How do you understand all of this? Uh, as it relates to the Psalms, and again, uh, my initial thought was we would probably have a whole day just on this sort of thing. Uh, but we aren't going to. Let me just uh, end, really, uh, talking about uh, another way the Psalms have been used. Uh, you may know the name Isaac Watts, who was the first person to create hymns in the English language and introduce to England and the English-speaking world something to sing in church other than the psalms that we talked about. Those metrical psalms from a few weeks ago. It was psalms such as these that led 18th century Isaac Watts to, as he put it, Christianize the psalms when writing his metrical psalm settings in order, as he said, to teach David to sing like a Christian. <laughs> now, let's read what it says here in his book. He is uh, he has put together. It was the first hymn book that was widely used in the English speaking world. Isaac Watts is D.D. He's a he's a minister. He's a highly trained Christian man. The Psalms of David imitated in the language of the New Testament and applied to the Christian state and worship. This is the 13th edition that you're looking at. All right. And then there's two Bible verses there. All things must be fulfilled which were written in the Psalms concerning me. Luke 24. Hebrews. David, Samuel, and the prophets, that they without us should not be made perfect. Hmm. Printed in London, and then again in Philadelphia, reprinted and sold by Benjamin Franklin at the new printing office near the market in the year 1740. Um, I'm opening up a can of worms here and, and not uh, in any way giving this opportunity to discuss it. But the hour is here and it's time to stop. Uh, that I, I just feel as though you, if you're going to talk about the Psalms, there's too many imprecatory Psalms for us just to pretend they're not there in a study of the Psalms. They are there. And uh, we can, in some other situation, some other time, uh, try to work through the complexities of how we understand that. And with that, I think it's probably best that we close because it's eight o'clock. So I thank you for letting me be with you to do this series.